Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With us today is Asla Bali. She's a professor of law and the director of the Center for Near Eastern Studies at UCLA. Uh, Asla, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So you've been working on a book and a project on uh, constitution writing uh, globally, and uh, you have a book coming out, co-edited with Hannah Lerner, on constitution writing, religion, and democracy. Tell us a little bit about this project and uh, what you think is interesting about the work you've been doing. The project focuses on societies that are experiencing conflict around religious identity or religious questions and that are then proceeding to undertake constitution writing exercises. And what we were interested in looking at is what's different about these societies and the kinds of prescriptions that might best work for them than what you typically find in the literature in terms of best practices around constitution writing. In particular, we thought that many of the features of liberal constitutional paradigms that are often invoked, including the American model and the French model, had limited validity in these contexts in which certain core presumptions, for example, the notion that there is a unified identity of the people drafting the Constitution who can articulate a kind of normative vision of their uh, polity as part of the founding moment of constitutionalism, these questions are very fraught in societies that are facing religious divisions in particular. This is because religious divisions are themselves often centered on normative conflict, conflict precisely around the normative quality of identity, the relationship of um, state to religion, and the status of uh, categories like religious law. These present special problems, and what we hypothesized in the kind of empirically grounded theoretical model that we try to develop in the book is that incremental strategies, strategies that pursue a different kind of drafting uh, procedure, whereby they either do not resolve at the constitutional level core normative conflicts or questions in the society, or they use other uh, drafting techniques such as ambiguity, or even the incorporation in some instances of conflicting provisions in a single constitutional text, enable these debates to be deferred to the ordinary political process in ways that we might frown on in the ideal liberal constitutional model, but that actually represent an avenue out of entrenching conflict or escalating conflict in ways that might not only cause the constitution writing process to go off track, but might actually reproduce um, violent conflict in the societies that are seeking to transition in the direction of democracy. And we saw examples of this that we thought were um, striking in the Egyptian context, for example, where you have a society that would not, by most metrics, be described as divided at the time that they entered into the constitution writing exercise. They would have been described, for example, as much less divided in sectarian or ethnic terms than many other states in the Arab world. But there were key divisions about the relationship of religion to state, about the status of religious identity and religious law. And these questions escalated dramatically when it seemed as if a zero-sum game might be produced in the constitution writing process where one normative vision would be entrenched and the other one would be essentially discarded. And that, we think, is at least part of an explanation for why the constitution drafting process devolved into a series of politically unstable arrangements yielding what has become a return to authoritarianism. So we look at 14 different case studies, many of them from the Muslim majority world, but not exclusively, and try to identify other techniques or other approaches that don't necessarily treat constitutionalism as a founding moment with all the freighted expectations of an entrenched and durable formula that might emerge out of a liberal constitutional imagination, 
um, but look at other more incremental strategies that may still have an important function for these societies in creating a modus vivendi for them to go forward with a political arrangement that improves the prospects for democracy in the country. Well, there's a lot going on there that sounds really interesting. Let me break this down into kind of three separate types of issues. One, about the nature of constitutions, and then about uh, the process you're talking about. And then I want to come back to the question at the end about what makes religion different as opposed to other kinds of deep identity or normative differences. But let me start by asking about this notion of a constitution and, and, and what it is and why it's so fraught in terms of uh, resolving these kinds of identity issues. Um, what makes a constitution different from other types of legislation or other types of, of state practice? Right. So typically, um, constitutions are regarded as different in part because they're more entrenched. They're, it's more difficult to revise or alter the arrangements that are put in place. And they're seen as statements that essentially structure the way in which subsequent political and legislative processes will be undertaken. And therefore, the stakes of which normative vision is embodied by the Constitution are often very high, which is an important set of questions to resolve in a society where you want to create very powerful political institutions that are durable over time. But if your starting point is not one of at least a, a moderate degree of consensus around some of the core issues that would have to be debated in the constitution writing process, then there's also a danger that by opening up these questions and by running the risk of entrenching a vision that may only command a bare majority, you produce permanent outsiders or losers to that constitutional and political equation in ways that ordinary legislation does not risk. So, for example, in an Egypt or a Tunisia, to have a constitution that defines the state as a Muslim Arab country, then basically you're defining a certain part of the population, uh, however small, in the case of Tunisia, you're defining them out of the national consensus. And actually, that would be an example of a provision that we would treat as somewhat more ambiguous than saying, for example, that Sharia will be not only a source of law or the source of law, but also implemented and interpreted by particular jurists that actually constrains the possibility of how lawmaking will proceed on the basis of a definition. So it's one thing to say we are going to define the state as Islamic in some sense. That might be actually a quite open-ended and ambiguous claim. For example, it might mean that we nonetheless also identify ourselves as, say, Tunisian, and that that's encompassing enough that even those groups that don't, as a demographic matter, identify as Muslim might feel that there is room for them in a constitutional arrangement. But committing to core institutional arrangements or core definitions that foreclose the options of interpretation subsequently or limit indeterminacy in ways that seem threatening to groups, not necessarily because they're excluded from that religious community, but because they differ from a majority's interpretation of how that religious tradition should be constituted in the polity, those kinds of divisions between, um, for example, uh, practicing and non-practicing Muslims. One of the things that we saw as most significant in the, the debates were in most of these societies was intra-communal uh, debates about the relationship of the state to religion. So that is, in Muslim-majority countries, the most intense debates were between Muslims that wanted to see an Islamic identification of the state and those that did not. So it wasn't necessarily that by identifying the state in some um, abstract way with a community that is Islamic represented a threat, rather it was co giving concrete instances and provisions that would constrain the ways in which the definition of the society as Islamic would be interpreted in the constitution of the state. That represented a greater threat. So we were surprised, for example, that 
the more salient religious divisions, even in societies that as a political matter were experiencing religious divisions between a majority and a minority, like India, for example, between the Hindu and mm -hmm. Muslim population, like Israel between a Jewish and Muslim or Christian population, the salient distinctions for the constitutional debates were intra-Jewish or intra-Hindu, largely. Did, did you look at a case like Iraq, where it's primarily Muslim, but the Sunni-Shia divide looms quite large? So we didn't look at Iraq or other cases of um, constitution drafting processes that were undertaken partially or largely under occupation, in part because we were trying to focus on constitution drafting that wasn't defined quite to that mm -hmm. extent by external factors to the society. But nonetheless, um, we did look in other instances where sectarianism played some kind of a role, uh, and that too, like, for example, was in the Lebanese context, we found that you might end up with quite different drafting devices deployed in a context where the distinctions are within a single religious community, but that defines itself along distinct sectarian lines, that looks a lot more like a society that is uh, constituted of different competing religions than a society in which you have no sectarian divisions and yet still very deep debates between those who are religiously observant and those who are not. Now, it's interesting because it seems like you make a distinction between kind of broad statements of principle versus implementation of those principles. And and th those are different layers of a constitution. And so my memory of Egypt, which could very well be wrong, is that it was the really the symbolic uh, opening Article 2 that was really getting a lot of the attention, that was getting people very upset rather than the later articles, which might talk about the uh, the way it was going to be implemented. But it sounds like you think actually those later parts might be actually more important. I think structurally the Constitution as a whole matters. So the degree to which the Constitution appears to constrain or foreclose particular forms of interpretation subsequently. So you might have exactly the same Article 2 as an example, but you might have institutions put in place, for example, give a particular constitutional role to al-Azhar, mm -hmm. and then that Article 2, which defines the relationship of the state to Sharia law, takes on a very different color. So you might not change at all the symbolic provision, mm -hmm. but if you indicate in the institutional design of the Constitution that the privileged interpreter is going to be a religious interpreter, or that there are going to be ways in which subsequent redefinition will be foreclosed of how Article 2 is interpreted, that raises the stakes. Now, let me, let me flip my order of questions a bit here, because I think this follows directly. Why, why religion specifically? Why, why is religion more central to the way you understand these questions than, say, economic policies, class divisions, or kind of other things which might be profoundly, profoundly divisive? Sure. Uh, so um, we think about the question, is religion special, and give it a qualified yes as an answer to that question. And we think there are a couple of things that make it distinctive. The first one I've already pointed to in my introductory comments, which is that the debates around the relationship of the state to religion are themselves definitionally normative debates. They're debates about um, what the identity of the state should be, how it ought to commit itself to a particular ethical and moral system. And that's different than kinds of debates that are about the share of the pie that different parties might be able to get. And also, we found that um, religion is different in particular from the other category of divided society that is often thought about in constitutional design questions, namely ethnically divided societies. Because for one thing, ethnically divided societies typically, not always, um, demonstrate an empirical pattern of having some degree of geographic concentration or other ways in which uh, the population is dispersed that makes it possible to implement uh, consociational models or other kinds of models federalism. that federalism, other um, 
institutional design strategies that enable um, overcoming those divisions. But where the questions are identitarian, where you don't have that kind of geographic concentration, where some of the typical devices that have been generated in the ethnically divided societies comparative law literature are unavailable because mm -hmm. they simply don't speak to the nature of the conflict, there I think there is a special category of questions that arise, and our view was that this category of questions that are fundamental to the normative identity of the society engaging in the constitutive moment may be very difficult to resolve at the founding. And therefore, the notion that all of the key questions that animate a society's political identity should be resolved at that founding moment, that a constitution should be endowed with the property of providing durable answers to all of these questions to structure the political life mm -hmm. of the society going forward was a dangerous one, where the likelihood was the resolution would end up empowering perhaps an, a perspective that enjoyed a majority, but not a perspective that had persuasively overcome normative challenges in that society. Uh, let me talk about, uh, let me ask you a question about a case which um, is a little bit different, but which I know you also research, um, you know, kind of more broadly, and that's what's going on in Turkey right now, where you have a process, uh, we're living through a constitution being redone, uh, following the rules, following the correct procedure, but of course uh, deeply inflammatory to many people in terms of the political implications. Um, how would, would how would you approach this as an exercise in constitution making? And, and what kinds of issues would you flag out of your general approach to this that we sure. should be thinking about? I mean, Turkey is a perfect example of a country that very much falls into the category of countries with which we're concerned in this book. Namely, it's a country that has a very clear majoritarian religious identity in the sense that 99 plus percent of the population is Muslim, but is experiencing very significant divisions over the question of religious identity between people who identify themselves as secular and those who identify themselves as religiously observant. So one alternative in writing a constitution in this context would be to try to have a very inclusive, deliberative process in which all groups are represented and you try to build a consensus. And something along those lines was attempted um, uh, in a way that was very limited, however, because the voting rules were such that every article would have to be adopted by a complete consensus. That is, any group or any block would have a veto power. And then you aligned groups, for example, um, ultranationalist groups and Kurdish political party in the same process a religiously observant political party and a, a deeply committed secular party in the same process, and you were unable to forge consensus. Out of that experience and the demand that the rules be such that any single individual or group could block any article from moving forward, the government basically advertised to the population that it was impossible to Im engage in a consensual constitution-making process in Turkey, and that the only alternative would be for the majority to impose a vision on a top-down basis. Our argument is precisely to say that there is a middle ground between these two models of having to resolve every single question at the outset, either by consensus or in some other way, or imposing a top-down vision. And that alternative is to come to a modus vivendi or agreement on the sets of thinner political institutions that do command consensus and defer questions like deep identitarian questions about the, the durable relationship of religion to state to the legislative process or the ordinary political process. That runs some risks. But what it doesn't do is produce a constitution process that could bring a country to the brink of a civil war. In Turkey, what we see today is in the aftermath of a coup, in the aftermath of a threatened exercise of violence to 
disrupt civilian governance. The government has used a window of opportunity to consolidate power in a dramatically authoritarian way, essentially suspending the rule of law and um, ruling by decree. And against this backdrop, and during the continuation of a state of emergency in which ordinary legislative processes have been suspended, and a substantial number of parliamentarians from the third largest political party in the country are being detained, the government, um, with a bare majority, is forcing through a vision of constitutionalism. We view that as a very poor um, prescription for a durable resolution of the identitarian conflict that has animated Turkey for the last 80 plus years and I think is likely to continue well past the entrenchment of the constitution that represents the vision of the AKP and its leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Now, Going back to the beginning, then, uh, you suggested that what makes constitutions different is, you know, the sense of permanence, that this is structuring all of the other institutions and conflicts and, and legislation and everything else. If you have something like Erdogan's uh, drafting the constitution in order to fit his political ambitions, does that make it less of a constitution, this notion that it is now something which is changeable, it could be revised when political fortunes change? Or is this, as you just said, a window of opportunity where this will be, once passed, this is going to be the rules that are going to structure Turkey for the foreseeable future? So from the literature's perspective and from the sort of political theoretical models, we think of constitutions as these entrenched, durable formula. And these debates become so fraught and the conflict over constitutions becomes um, so polarizing precisely because societies also treat these exercises in this way, partly because the political imagination is captured by, for example, the example of the American founding moment and its durability. In point of fact, the average constitution in the international system has a lifespan of about 24 years. Mm. And the truth is that uh, a third or more of countries um, since the 1990s have changed radically or altered or repealed, revised, and, and instituted new constitutions. And in the case of Turkey, we've had a constitution that has been extremely durable. The constitution um, from 1924 has been twice revised, but the core constitutional bargain that it reflected has never been changed. And the core principles that were enshrined in 1924 have never been changed. And this is despite the fact that it was imposed also through a top-down exercise by a single-party state. So we're not saying that top-down imposed constitutions necessarily uh, will not be durable, or that constitutions that are adopted in a more incremental fashion are going to be more durable. What we're looking at is the quality of the constitutional agreement that's reached and whether or not that constitutional agreement is able to channel conflict in the society into ordinary political channels in order to resolve disagreement without resort to violence or more likely to incentivize um, resort to extra political violence and instability. We think that top-down efforts to entrench a constitution over very significant objection from an important proportion of the population are, first, unlikely to encourage democratization. And one thing I think we could, um, most analysts of Turkey and its constitutional order can agree on is that this constitution, which is being imposed by President Erdogan, whatever its likely durability does not have strong democratic credentials and is very unlikely to enhance the consolidation of democracy in Turkey. It seems very much like a step in the other direction. Our book is concerned with what might be positive steps in the direction of uh, greater democratization and which constitution drafting processes could correlate to those. And our view is, in the context of deep religious divisions like the context we see in Turkey, uh, adopting a much more incremental approach is likelier to accomplish the objective of channeling conflict into political processes and moving in a progressive direction towards democratic consolidation as opposed to reversal. 
Well, great. Thanks. Uh, we've been speaking with Asla Bali of UCLA, uh, talking about her new forthcoming book, Constitution Writing, Religion and Democracy, which she co-edited with Hannah Lerner. Asla, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.